You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. And hey, it's Grace. And today, uh, for spooky season, I am bringing you two short stories, one about a hag that haunts Lake Erie. And then we're going to go south and talk about Pennsylvania's first witch trial. So consider this an episode of female empowerment. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to do that, but it just that's the theme that jumped out at me. (laughs) Oh, good. We can use that sometimes. I know. Oh my God, I need it today. <laughs> so this is the story of the storm hag of Lake Erie. The storm hag is described as a rail thin, hideous demon of the lake. She has bright glowing yellow eyes that can pierce the darkness. Her skin is a sickly pale green. Her teeth are pointed and sharp like a shark's. And she is sometimes called Jenny Green Teeth. <laughs> Which I think Weird. is like the funniest name for this like really ugly like scary monster jenny green teeth (laughs) and i i thought that was just kind of like a random nickname but i looked it up um and according to wikipedia jenny green teeth or wicked jenny or Ginny green teeth depending on where you are uh is a figure in english folklore a river hag similar to peg pallor or grindylo i don't know well, Grindylow, I know from Harry Potter, but the other exactly one, that's what I, I was thinking. I don't know what that is, but uh, it says she would pull children or the elderly into the water and drown them. Huh. And then it just goes on to say that it can be used to describe pondweed, so it can be a little bit confusing. So, <laughs> but that's that's the origins. That's where Jenny Green Teeth came from. It that that just sounds like a nickname I would make up. That's really dumb. To describe her some more, at the ends of her long arms are talon-like claws that are dripping with venom. So basically she can just grab you and kill you. And this is a quote from one of the sources that I used. She lurks below the surface of the lake near... Now I heard this on a YouTube video and they said Presque Isle. So hopefully that's correct. Um, in Lake Erie. Her lithe form forever swimming through the weeds and the mire. Pale and green of skin, her yellow eyes shine luminously in the dark, and her thin, long arms wrap themselves around the unwary while foul green, pointed teeth sink into soft flesh and sharp nails at the end of long bony fingers stroke you into the deepest sleep there is. She is called by many names, but to sailors of Lake Erie, she is known as the Storm Hag. Now, I'm going to ask a question. I feel like Mm -hmm. this is like a serious question because i'm not good with like areas and like that kind of stuff lake erie isn't it in other states other than pa yes yes okay okay yeah it connects states Mm -hmm. okay that's what i thought just what just checking so it's a fairly large lake (laughs) yes yes it is But yeah, she sounds terrifying. I actually found if you scroll down in the document, just a couple like artists renderings of her that I'll post on the blog. But basically exactly what you're imagining, the stuff of nightmares. When you were looking it up, did you see a lot of like uh, like that kind of freeform art? Not so much with this specific uh, hag. But that I mean, one there is was pretty definitely. Intense. Yeah, there are definitely. Um, 
some cool ones out there that are similar because the one is from DeviantArt and people post like the coolest shit there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what she looks like. I feel like this is, I don't know, singing always creeps me out. But similar to a siren, she sings a song to lure sailors into the depths of the lake. Part of her song goes, I'm not going to sing it. I don't know the melody. So (laughs) (laughs) it says, come into the water, love, dance beneath the waves, where dwell the bones of sailor lads inside my saffron caves. I guess she has yellow caves. (laughs) Or is that supposed to mean, is that a euphemism? I don't know. I was trying to figure out why it would be saffron caves. I don't know. The only thing I know about the saffron, though, um, I guess like those three barbs, I guess they're yellow, but it's actually a purple flower, purple and orange. Yeah. I don't know. All I know about saffron is it's fucking expensive. I know. I know that, too. And I could never really find it, so. Not the good stuff anyway. But yeah, I don't I think she's referring to a color, but I can't confirm. <laughs> so here's just a couple of examples of ships that have vanished without a trace on Lake Erie. And I mean, weird paranormal stuff is mentioned in all of them. I'm thinking that the ships actually did, you know, crash. And I mean, Lake Erie is one of the finger lakes and they, the weather over these lakes can change so quickly. Like that's what they're known for and just snowstorms that come out of nowhere. So it's not surprising that a lot of ships have got caught in really severe weather. Um, So these ships going missing could be absolutely true. They're just embellished a little bit, but um, I found these. So I'm going to go through a couple. Okay. So in fall 1782, After withstanding a violent storm, it seemed to be clear sailing for an owler, which is a ship smuggling wool, apparently, on its way to Presque Isle. Less than a mile from shore, under the light of a full moon, the water bubbled, the storm hag popped out, poisoned the crew with her untrimmed talons, and dragged the boat down, the screams of the sailors echoing in the night. So I'm guessing that someone from off, you know, on shore had to see this to be able to, I give, I guess, give those details, correct? Or were there survivors? No, it was people on shore, you know, allegedly. And there were some others too that I won't get to because there were quite a few listed, but people saying that they still hear like the screams of sailors at night and, you know, things like that. They see the the apparitions of people who have died. So, yeah, it's pretty much uh, people on the shore or so I've heard. (laughs) In summer of 1841, the steamship Erie exploded 33 miles from Buffalo, killing 250 people. Twice thereafter, burning phantom ships in the shape of the Erie appeared to onlookers on shore. First near Cleveland, after a severe thunderstorm, then near Erie, which was before a severe thunderstorm. So some people say that she appears right before a storm, and some say she appears afterward. Those acquainted with the hag advised against rescue attempts, warning that these holograms were only an invitation to their own demise. So they were like, don't bother. They're fake ships. Don't try to rescue anybody which could potentially be problematic if they that didn't affect anyone in real life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in winter of 1942, the tugboat Admiral was accompanying the oil tanker Clevco eastbound toward Cleveland 
when early one December morning, the Admiral disappeared. The tow line it was attached to was angled into the waves as if it had been yanked downward. The Coast Guard was radioed, and by the time it arrived, both ships were MIA. The Civil Air Patrol joined the hunt the following morning and spotted the Clevco. The pilot's radio promptly went dead, and the Clevco was engulfed in a sudden snowstorm. Then a cutter ship sighted it later, but surprise, the tanker dissolved into another spontaneously appearing blizzard. And the author of this was pretty funny. They said, in parentheses, at press time, the storm hag might be the most legitimate attempt to rationalize eerie weather I have yet encountered. Uh, So I guess they're familiar with the crazy weather up there. The Clevco eventually reestablished radio with the Coast Guard, but only for about an hour. Communications then went silent and it was neither seen nor heard from again. And I don't know if it was kind of found as wreckage at the bottom of the lake later or um, if it was truly never seen again. But I mean, the lake is it's big. It's not a small lake. I mean, it it touches a bunch of different states and it gets deep. So you know, it's definitely possible there could be unfound wreckage down there. And I feel like recently, like with a lot of people, especially on platforms like TikTok, you'll have these divers taking footage underground looking for things. You know, people are finding some of the craziest stuff like amateur um, people looking for bones and stuff like that. Someone just found Mm -hmm. a crazy bone. It's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he was just like, doing it for fun not even like an actual professional what was the bone from was it a dinosaur oh i don't even think so i think it was from like a mammoth but it was like so nicely preserved wow but i see tons of people like finding the shark teeth or what is it mag maglodon megalodon megalodon yeah megalodon that's it um just and people randomly finding gold it's just people have so much spare time they want to get a following it's kind of like diy let's go do this so i feel like a lot of crazy stuff has been found and it always reminds me of the guy who found that murder case when he saw a car in like google earth and things like that he was just messing around looking he thought he saw a car in a lake on google earth and it was. He called the police. I don't know if you remember that story, but it's like... I do, yeah. Just random people finding the craziest stuff. Well, I think about the TikTok that was made when people were randonauting and found that suitcase full of body parts oh. in the water. Like I didn't hear about that. You didn't? It was a few no. years ago. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly when it was. Oh my gosh, I'll send you the information. But yeah, do you know what randonauting is? Absolutely not. (laughs) It's basically just this app where you set an intention, like, I think just mentally of what you want. If you want to find somewhere creepy or somewhere where like the color red is prominent or something, and it will generate random points for you. Huh. And I mean, people have said creepy stuff about it, but really it's kind of, I think it's like confirmation bias. Like you set the intention to go find something. So when you go to that point and you have to be careful because it'll give you, it could give you any point. So it could potentially give you private property or whatever. Oh, I see. So you have to be careful. But some people have set the intention of like finding something creepy. And then they went to this point and they were filming it and they found a suitcase of body parts. <sighs> so yeah, like that is, that's wild. That's terrible. Yeah. So it's, you know, cool to go looking for stuff, but sometimes you find a lot more. (laughs) 
than you bargained than you for. bargained for. Like holy hell! And I just watched rewatched the movie Ghost Ship, so that's that's a great example. Oh my goodness! When you're telling your story, it's all I could think about. It is my <laughs> yeah. absolute favorite movie, and the yeah. soundtrack is ah. Uh, ben kiss. walked. Ben walked through the room. He's like, "Is that Mudvayne?" <laughs> I was like, "Yes." <laughs> That's how I got into Mudvayne. Actually, I absolutely love them, though. I think they like totally jumped on like the mainstream bandwagon yeah. after a couple albums. But man, their first couple albums were amazing. If you guys have never seen Ghost Ship, it's from 2002. And I think it is extremely underrated. If you like absolutely if you like horror movies, it's not super gory because I don't like over the top gore. It's well, I feel like I mean, there are a couple people that get kind of i will say landon my son is 11 and he loves horror movies but i really limit it to like not gory and like i guess there's some other you know topics that we try to like avoid so i mean he doesn't watch everything but we watched ghost ship and he really did like it and appreciate it so i don't think it's too bad like i let him watch it but it's just it has a really really good cast and really great soundtrack and it's good from the beginning i feel like I don't know. It did not get like great critical reviews. It did not. And but even I don't I don't understand. <laughs> watching it now, I mean, everything is still like it doesn't look stupid. It doesn't look like bad graphics or anything. It's yeah. I, I love it. It's really good. And the soundtrack, like you said, it was great. So I don't know. Maybe that's just us, but I think you guys should add it to your <laughs> to your list. Whoever if you have I, it. Whenever I've talked about that movie to anybody who also has seen it has agreed. I haven't met one person that did not like it. And yeah. actually that we're talking about it, we're we are in the same Facebook group that uh, babes of uh um, body. body work. <laughs> yeah. They, it was on a ton of people's like top like they have that top five Monday thing oh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was on so many people's top ten movie horror movie list that they put out this week. So I think it's pretty good cool cool agreed there's so much drama on that page that's the only reason we're on it <laughs> yeah basically a lot of entertainment Unreal. so that was a story of the storm hag now we're going into the witch trial of pennsylvania it is actually officially the only witch trial of pennsylvania so keep that in mind i didn't even know there was one so well i'm you know. about to school you <laughs> <laughs> So I got a lot of this information from the research of Carla Welsh, who was interviewed for an article on a local PBS site, and she did a ton of research on this topic. I mean, she pulled obviously super old documents and she really dug in there. So kudos to her. I also pulled from a couple other sources that I'll list on the blog, but I really wanted to give her a shout out. Nice. So in 1684, in what is now either Chester or Delaware County, depending on the source, and I lean more toward Delco because that's what Carla Welsh says. But in that area, a farmer by the name of Henry Dry Street kept dairy cows. And lately the cows had not been producing milk. And this could only mean one thing, which was witchcraft, obviously. <laughs> I like how it's the first jump. <laughs> I know. Like witch. <laughs> Yep, definitely. So Margaret Matson, a Swedish townswoman and also her fellow immigrant, I believe it's Yeshro, hopefully, Hendrickson, became the center of these accusations. And just note that this Yeshro is not mentioned much throughout the story. And I don't know if it's because most of the blame was on Margaret, but the story is mostly centered on her rather than Yeshro. But 
they were both charged. So and she was also included in this story. So I'm assuming she's a woman too, right? Yes. To clarify. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about that either until I did some more research. But yes, both Swedish women. Okay. And yeah, she's involved, but most of the info is about Margaret. Okay. It was already a local rumor that they had been practicing witchcraft. So it was kind of easy to point the fingers at them. Margaret in particular became known as the Witch of Ridley Creek. So Matson, Margaret, uh, lived on a farm with her husband, Niels. In 1683, she was accused of bewitching farm animals and saying strange incantations while boiling meat in a great cauldron. And that was printed in a now discontinued newspaper. So that was one of the things that uh, Carla Welsh found during her research. But strange incantations while boiling meat. <laughs> like, that just sounds like me swearing while I'm cooking. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> so interesting take there. It's you want to know something it, what it makes me think of. And I know you will laugh when I say it. Um, we were up in New Hampshire and Landon, he started really his spoony obsession. I know you mm-hmm. know what that means, but it is a self-stimming thing. And at the time, it was like just starting. So he had picked up a stick and literally when he is overwhelmed, he will self-stim and like tap. And he would, at, we were on this huge property and it was along like a wooded area. He would walk back and forth and he would, he just, I know you know what I mean, but he just says things. He'll repeat commercials or just say random words that he makes up. <laughs> and my brother-in-law always says he's looking for the portal but like if he lived (laughs) in this time guaranteed everyone would be like he's a witch you're so right (laughs) yep Mm -hmm. because it almost looks like she's doing spells he like adds a little flick with his hand he does a little movement and then he just keeps walking you're like that child just cursed me for sure Uh (laughs) but he's like repeating a commercial for like I don't know, but I don't, I don't know if I told you, and I know like we're not political and, I, and I'm not political at all. And we don't talk about this stuff with Landon, but we were like eating dinner at a new restaurant the other night and me and his dad were just talking about something about our work schedules. And out of nowhere, Landon looks and says, don't vote for John Fetterman and gave a reason why <laughs> it's because it's on a commercial on YouTube. <laughs> and Sean thought he like learned it from school. And I'm like, excuse you. Oh my God. Yeah. He, he mimics and repeats stuff. It's part of his like special needs thing yeah which absolutely for real i feel like he would be thrilled if we told him he was a witch oh yeah he would love it oh oh my gosh that is funny so keep in mind that this was less than a decade before the full-blown hysteria that was the salem witch trials uh so this was already considered a serious offense to be practicing witchcraft people were really starting to get like on edge about it but my so my question is Like, I feel like back then, like medicine was like a super trial and error thing. So when does it change from like doing that kind of stuff to like witchcraft? You know what I mean? Like, they're really trying anything. Is it just because there's like a minor inconvenience or it's an easy target or I don't know. It just always confused me because like you have someone over here like doing, I don't know what the word is for it, but like making those concoctions and stuff like that more like holistic medicine i guess yeah i feel like they had another word for it back then and then you have like someone that you think is a witch for kind of like putting stuff together and trying to heal as well so i'm just like what i don't get it what like what makes you more why are you dying and this person is i don't know 
So we'll talk about it in a little bit, but it's definitely like people who are on the fringes of society that people already see as weird. Um, you know, poorer people, uh, it's just easier to point fingers at them. And so this was, you know what? We'll get into it soon. It'll kind of answer your question, but I mean, it really has to do with like hysteria and like groupthink and everything. So yeah, easy targets. So luckily William Penn himself was the presiding judge over this case. And he had abolished the death penalty except for willful murder, which would change in 1718 when witchcraft was officially listed along uh, 13 other offenses as a capital offense, which wasn't reversed for quite a while, I believe. Wow. I mean, long after they had stopped charging people with it i believe it was still technically on the books but at this time the only thing that you could be put to death for was willful murder so penn provided a swedish interpreter and margaret was allowed to defend herself at the trial which was not allowed back in england i really think that that is crazy that back then they were able to be like accommodated for i mean probably not 100 percent, but that accommodation is like incredible i think that's huge yeah they really went on in this research about like how unique it was that william penn kind of allowed this i mean women were in such a for lack of a better word position in society at the time you know all over the world so him allowing her to defend herself in court was huge at this time so through her interpreter margaret pled not guilty to the charges And now we'll get into like a couple of the people at the trial, like in the jury uh, and people who spoke against Margaret specifically. It's actually unclear whether Henry, who was the farmer I mentioned in the beginning, whether he was the first to really claim that these ladies were performing witchcraft or if he was on the jury at the trial. It's unclear. But either way, his stance was that this person is a witch. So either way, he was like burner at the stake. And William Penn was like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, another man, Charles Ashcom, said Margaret's own daughter had told him that she was a witch. I mean. And then finally, a woman named Anarchy Coolin told the jury Margaret had boiled a calf's heart after removing it through witchcraft. So that, I mean, that's a pretty big jump. There's these couple other townspeople that was are like, oh, her daughter said, uh, it's hearsay, uh, you know, there's rumors. And then this one lady who's like, she boiled a calf's heart and she (laughs) didn't even remove it like in a physical way. It was through witchcraft. (laughs) So that's out there. Uh, Despite not having a lawyer, Margaret delivered a strong defense for each of the allegations, saying that the witnesses uh, spake, which is old English, of course, (laughs) only by hearsay. Which Good for her is true. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking this whole time. I'm like, damn, Margaret, get it. Talk about female empowerment. So in the end, the jury did find Margaret and Yeshro guilty. Okay. Guilty of having a reputation of being witches. Uh. <laughs> That's what they're against. <laughs> but not actually practicing witchcraft. So that was... William Penn was said to kind of have like guided the jury towards this because we'll see kind of what his personal stance on witchcraft was, but he wasn't about to 
severely punish two women for having a reputation. Yeah. So the husbands of the two women were fined 50 pounds as a bond for good behavior. And I guess I didn't look it up, but this was not a small amount of money. Oh, no, I can't even imagine back then. Yeah. But if no further charges were made in six months, the money would be returned. So it really was like a bond. It was a common Quaker practice known as a peace bond. Um, So it it wasn't a small amount of money, but, you know, it was kind of just on hold. Like a hold on your debit card. (laughs) Yeah. Not to turn this into a boring history lesson, but I just want to give like a little bit of background to the story. So William Penn was a founder of Pennsylvania, and he was gifted this land by King Charles II in 1681. So that was only three years before all this happened that he kind of came over and started settling everyone in. And he was very big on religious freedom. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) What a progressive man. That's what a lot of people did come here for, like especially Quakers. But then I think a lot of them seem to be like, we want religious freedom for us. And if you don't, you know, practice what we practice, you're a savage, you're weird. So, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy there. But as far as this research says about William Penn, he really was about actual religious He himself was an advocate of old world Christian philosophy. And I don't exactly know what that means. But like I said, this is not a history lesson. (laughs) So he had his own set of beliefs, but he believed in religious freedom for all. And so the precedent that he set with this trial and, you know, basically it seemed like he went really easy on them. Mm -hmm. compared to what we see in Salem like 10 years later. But the precedent stood throughout the rest of the 17th century and witchcraft actually thrived in some areas in many forms. And much of what we would call witchcraft today was not associated with the dark arts of like witches of the past. You know, it would come in the form of German folk magic and American traditions of hex magic. I mean, you see the hex signs all over barns. I mean, there's all different types of like spirituality and, you know, pagan practices. So So I'm going to throw it in there. I'm going to do basically a free ad for my aunt and uncle. My aunt and uncle. They run a store. It's called 13moons.com. And honestly, it it gets a lot of hate. They feel they've had the business for, God, forever, for a very long time. Uh, I'm actually going to look it up to give you a description. But they're thinking about, like, splitting it, like having another online store name so it doesn't deter people. Because when you get onto it, you see pagan stuff. And they kind of like, like, I just put it in and it says, I'm going to say it wrong, Samhain? October 31st. I forget what it's actually called. Is I think uh, it's Sam Hain or it? Sam Hine, and I'm Sam, sure we yeah. sound really um, ignorant, but I, I think so. <laughs> yes, but like they have like cleansing incense. They have chalices, books, brooms, cauldrons, natural stones, you know, they have a ton of stuff. It's a great store. It's family owned. They make a lot of stuff on there, but you know, it's definitely different than what you know, my grandmother is like, they're bad people. They like do black magic. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> do so. they get a lot of hate from outside people? Because like, that's surprising to me because you go into some like pagan stores, I feel like even locally and they're like packed with people and they, people I feel are really into that. 
lately. They definitely did have like a solid like storefront, but I think they were thinking about getting another one, but then COVID hit. They said that during, since like COVID, their numbers have almost like doubled, almost tripled um, a lot of online ordering, but it's all from other countries. It's not really from the U.S. They are in the U.S., but it's from other uh, countries in Europe, especially. And they've had to hire so many more people. Like usually it was so tiny. It was kind of just like my aunt and uncle and like a friend. They have like full time employees, like a full time photographer. The website's like really dope. It's completely maintained by my uncle. It's uh and they like love what they do. They're good people. Yeah, we can put that link on the blog. I mean, if you're into it, you're into it. If you're not, you're not. But yeah, you know, I wish them well. And I keep meaning to get on their website. Actually, I think that's pretty cool. And they sell like random stuff. I know for the longest time they had like these really cool drawer knobs, like Harry Potter, like broomsticks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's not like all just pagan stuff. And like, even if you just like incense and they like hand make a lot of their stuff. Uh, I think they're called Grigris. I think they are. And it has like certain scents and you put them on them. And it's like supposed to protect you. It's like stuff like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. But luckily throughout Pennsylvania after this, I mean, a lot of different kind of branches of not necessarily witchcraft, but that kind of paganism, spirituality that was allowed to exist. So William Penn was well known to have had a positive relationship with the Lenape Native Americans whose traditions may also have had a role in shaping witchcraft and spirituality in the region over the years. So, you know, he he had a good relationship with a lot of different people that practice different things. So the outcome also highlights the difference between Quakers and Puritans, because this was a Quaker area. The Puritans were the ones up in Salem that they just had a very specific, specific thoughts about how you should dress, how you should act, how you should talk. And if you were outside of that box, you were just an outcast. So I mean, it was it's very easy to see when you kind of even just scratch the surface of that research, how people on the fringes of society ended up getting fingers pointed at them. And, you know, people already thought they were weird. So, you know, obviously that equaled witchcraft. So that's it's kind of sad that the outcome was so different, like good for Pennsylvania. But all those people, uh, men and women during the Salem witch trials was just a very sad situation. Uh, Witchcraft trials, which have roots in Europe dating back to as early as the 16th century, often took place during periods of crisis. It's pretty clear that people at the margins of society were often the scapegoats for those in power during these crises where fear was abundant. So fear makes people nuts. Oh, yeah. And like, honestly, we just saw it with COVID. I mean, it it brings out the finger pointing. It brings out, you know, it kind of almost takes away people's humanity. So it's, you know, that can devolve pretty quickly, which is very scary. But that's, that's how people ended up being burned at the stake for being a witch. 
So here's just a quick quote, whether the traditions of the witches of the early modern era align with what modern witches do today doesn't matter. The point of this article is to show the foundation of religious tolerance in Pennsylvania that allowed for witches in PA to practice their folk magic in peace, unafraid of persecution by corrupt government officials or accusation by jealous neighbors. William Penn set a precedent for witchcraft in America that echoed in short order around the world. In many ways, Penn is like the grandfather of modern witchcraft. Uh, So I don't know if I would go that far. No. But I mean, it it was. It was very progressive for the time. So if you'd like to know more, there is a book called Witches of Pennsylvania, Occult History and Lore by Thomas White which came up as a recommendation during my research. There are also reenactments of that trial at William Penn's former home at Pennsbury Manor in Morrisville, Pennsylvania. Every that year. isn't too far. No, mm-mm. it's actually huh. kind of in the same general area as Devil's Road, Cossar Road in Chad's Ford. Well, so I know, you know? We, <laughs> we have places to go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so around Halloween, they have that and other activities every year. So if that's something you're into, I'm going to post a link to that as well. There's a couple cool, very old scans of like newspapers that this Carla Welsh found in her research. And I'm going to post a couple of those on the blog as well. But that's about it. Uh, Happy spooky season. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins, production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.